come back May 21st in 2000, I think it was 11 or 12, and then it didn't happen. He goes, oh, sorry, my calculations were wrong. That was in October. And then October came and went, and he goes, you know what, I've been wrong. And he made predictions, similar predictions, in 1994. And these are people that said, I've seen the books, I've seen all the stuff in the news. You know what, every time someone else comes back with a new book, everybody buys the book, and then they fleece the sheep. I don't believe in any of that end times garbage. And you're going to encounter that. I mean, and, and rightly so, because there have been some who have made predictions. I mean, I was doing research for this message, and some of you have been around a little bit longer. There was actually a book that came out in the late 1980s was 88 Reasons That Jesus Will Come Back in 1988. And there were books like this, and there's predictions all the time about it. And then you have people that are just like, I disbelieve you Christians are nuts. And so they totally just throw out the baby with the bathwater. But we can't let those who have taken steps beyond what Scripture says influence us and, and, and so we, that we don't study the end times. Because the Bible does speak about the end of time. And we want to preach the full counsel of God's Word. And we have to counteract those disbelieving darlas. But then we have, on the other side, we have a guy that I call the scared Stephen. The scared Stephen believes it. Matter of fact, he believes everything and anything that has to do with the end of time. You want to talk about the Bible? You want to talk about Nostradamus? You want to talk about whatever prophecy there is? They're scared. They watch probably a lot. I might indict some people here. But they watch a lot of Fox News, and they have bunkers set up in the basement ready to go with ammo and everything else. Okay? And there's people there, and some of you might be that place. And you're scared at the end of time. You're scared where the culture is headed. You're scared about all the things that you see in the news. And you get worried about it. And I remember even when the Herald Camping thing came out that I saw people posting on uh, social media were scared at midnight what was going to happen. And I've seen that happen before. How many of you remember Y2K? How many of you were, uh, remember that? And you were like, midnight's coming, and you're standing together. All the computers are going to crash. Everything, the whole economy is going to quit. We have this fear mentality that is there. And, and many of us, in some ways, are the scared Stevens. And we have to be careful of that because when we look at the, the end times, that's something that, should, something that should scare us. It's something that should give us hope, that should encourage our hearts. We need to remember that. Jesus is coming back. That's not that something that should bring us to fear. If you're a believer in Christ, you shouldn't have be afraid. It should be, hallelujah, he's coming. You know, I, I, think, about, I think about when... Uh, uh, when I when my wife has been gone for like a, a, a women trip, you know, a ladies trip or a retreat, and I'm watching with the kids, and I'm counting down. My wife's coming home. Hallelujah! You know, it's not oh she's coming home. There's a little bit of that, like get the house clean, kids. But it's she's coming back. It's it's exciting to me. I get to see my wife. I get to see my bride. And how much glorious, more glorious will it be when Jesus comes? I mean, that's not going to be a fear. That's going to be. Holy, 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 it's going to be shouting. It's going to be the the greatest party the world has ever known. It's greater than any championship that we could ever celebrate. And that includes the Cubs this year when they win. So, okay, it it, it includes that. I mean, it's everything you can think of from a sports metaphor, but infinitely greater. It's greater than wedding days. It's greater than sports championships. It's greater than than victories in war. It's greater than all of those things. And put them all together, and they still don't even begin to equal what it will be like when Jesus comes back. Nothing like that. So we have to to remember that. So we have these, though. We have the scared Stephen, and we need not be scared. But besides the scared Stephen, there's what I call the next one. He's the newspaper Ned. 
Newspaper Ned is always reading the news. He's really concerned about what's going on in the Middle East. He's really concerned about oil prices and money markets and the mark of the beast and who the identity of the Antichrist is. And he gets most of his theology not from the Scriptures, but from the newspaper. And that's, that's what I call, you, you might want to call tabloid theology. And that's not good theology. We have to go back to the Word of God. No matter what these other books come out, and there's always guys throwing out books, by the way. You know, I had a professor when I was a student at uh, Bible college. He said, you know, all the Christian books that sell, there are two kinds. He said the the Christian books that sell are are books on dating. That's one of the Christian books that sell really well. And he goes, and then all the books on the end times, they sell really well. So I'm putting it together, how to date in the end times. It's going to be a bestseller. But that's where people are. It's true. It's really true. And these are people that really care about, the, I mean, they don't, these are people that, by the way, that don't show up at church regularly, but if there's anything on the end times, they're suddenly there. And I've had this. I've had this in my church, that when you start talking about end times, everybody wants to come out and talk about it, but yet they don't, they don't want the discipleship. They just want to know what the end of time is so they can prepare for it and make sure that they're ready and do just enough to get in. That's the newspaper Ned theology. And we, didn't need, we don't need to have a newspaper Ned. Instead, we need to be confident Christophers. That's what I call the confident Christophers. Confident Christopher is a person who knows the Word of God. He knows that there's the truths of God's Word. He believes the truths of God's Word. But yet he also knows a lot about history. And he's looked back at history and he's seen the, the abuses and the misunderstandings that have occurred. And he's confident that Jesus will return. He doesn't disbelieve. In fact, he does believe. But he also knows that he can't be swayed by every news cycle that comes out. That he's steadfast on God's word. He believes what God's word says. He believes that Jesus Christ is coming back. And he knows he is to be ready all the time. And that's how we are to live. We're to be confident in what the Word of God says, but we are to be confident in that if He comes back, we're ready. We're prepared for it. We're prepared for all that He has for us. We are being faithful with what He has given us. Now, so as we delve and jump into this important subject, I want us to ask ourselves a question. Which one am I? Which one are you? Just in those little categories that I gave. You've got the who cares Wilma. You've got the disbelieving Darla, the scared Stephen, the newspaper Ned, and then you've got the confident Christopher. Which one, where do you fall? Now, I hope that all of us can be confident Christophers by the time that we're done. And we can bank on what we truly know. But let me tell you something. Eschatology, which is the study of the end times, eschaton means the last things. And we're studying the last things. We are moving into this study of end times. So we're going to be talking about it here. We're going to talk about it next week. And we're going to be, when we jump into 2 Thessalonians, we're going to be covering it even further. But so, so today I want to do something slightly different. I want to lay a foundation. I don't want to just jump into this flippantly. Because let me tell you something. There are many scholars that are from a variety of different positions, that all love Jesus, that see vastly different things here. And this is something that in the history of the church has been very divisive between churches. Churches have split over small aspects of what they call their eschatology. Is, and when is Jesus coming back? Is he come back between before the tribulation period, the seven-year period of tribulation that's going to come? Does he come back in the middle of it? Does he come back at the end of it? And churches have split over that. And that's not what we here at Village Bible Church want to be. We recognize that many of you might have di- different theological positions and understandings of that, and we respect that. 
And we're not trying to change that, but as a church, we've come down on a position that we believe is, is uh, gracious, it is open, and it's willing to have discussion. It's not a condemnatory place, but a place that says we can hold these different parts in tension and still be in fellowship with one another. Because as we've delved into this very important subject, we can see that there are a lot of pieces to it. Matter of fact, there are probably more pieces to the study of eschatology and our understanding of it there, there, there is than anything else in all of Scripture. And more controversy around it. So we want to make sure that we're being fair and we're also being what I call intellectually humble. Have an intellectual humility. Meaning that as we approach the subject, we are realizing that we are not approaching it by ourselves. See, whenever we read the Word of God, we have to make sure that we are submitting our interpretations of Scripture to the greater community of believers in Christ. And we need to understand, it means from different cultures, different eras and epochs, so we can show that we are not coming up with our own thing. But we are something that is once believed by all the saints for all time. So in that spirit, we are approaching this subject, and we're going to to talk about some distinctions. It's going to be slightly different than we normally do. Normally, we like to break down a text. Today, it's not going to be so much that, is that we're going to use this kind of as a springboard to to a discussion of the end times and and lay out some groundwork and framework for why we've come to positions that we have and let you know more about it. But before I go any further, let's ask for God's blessing on our message time, shall we? Heavenly Father, I come before you asking you to speak to us. Lord, we know that you have declared the, what is going to happen at the end of time. And Lord, we delight in that. And we come before you humbly, asking by your Spirit to understand. We recognize that there have been many men and women of God, great saints that have been blessed with uh, immense talents of mind and spirit that have come to vastly different conclusions in regard to when, you, when it is that you will come again. But Lord, we come before you asking that you speak to us and show us how we are to live and how we might hold some things in a closed hand, that these are the the must-haves of our faith. And Lord, help us to open up our hand for the things that we can debate and discuss with one another. But Lord, we come before you, the Lord of glory, knowing that you are the one who has ordained the end of time. And we celebrate that, that you are coming again. You have told us that within your word. Lord, it is our blessed hope to see you face to face, to have all of the wrongs righted, to have evil judged, to be vindicated for our faith in you. And yet we shudder to know that there are many family members and friends classmates and co-workers who are still yet living apart from you. Lord, please give us a heart that burns with the things that burns your heart, that excites you, that makes you long for. Lord, may we long for similar things, that your name might be vindicated, that other people might be inspired and encouraged to walk closer with you, that others might forsake sin. And Lord, those who are, who are feeling hopeless and forlorn, Lord, I pray that they might find encouragement through you and through this, this study of your coming again. So Lord, be in our time today. Open our hearts to the truth of who you are and glorify your name as we talk about this very important subject. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So first thing I want to jump into right away is I want to talk about the distinction between various doctrine, doctrines, especially surrounding the end times. 
a distinction among various doctrines about the end times. Now, I know that sometimes um, we, we talk here at the church often, and I've heard Protestants especially say this, that we believe the Word of God. And whenever they're debating someone, usually more from a Catholic background, the Catholic background usually says, I, I believe what the priest says. And, and a lot of our uh, Protestants say, well, we believe what the Bible says. But the reality is, is that's not always quite true, is we have our own popes and councils when we, when we talk as Protestants. Teachers that we have as go-to teachers that we open the book on. And, and in many of our circles that our church has been affiliated with, we look at the Charles Ryries and the John MacArthur's, and these are great individuals. But we also have to go back and say, what does the Word of God say? And how do we discern these distinctions between various understandings of the end times? There are certain names that I might throw out that some of you might be familiar with and others of you may not. But I know that many of us have teachers that we listen to and we admire greatly, uh, men such as R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, John Piper, D.A. Carson, um, Mark Dever. These are names we have heard about, Tim Keller, and all of them are going to be in these positions that I'm telling you about today, and they don't just fall on one position or another. So I want us to understand as we approach this subject, and again, we're laying a framework this week and hope to explore more in detail next week, but we just want to lay that out before you as we look at these distinctions between various doctrines. And as we talk about various doctrines, I want I want to set the stage a little bit more. We have to understand, first of all, that there are doctrines that we would die for. There's doctrines that we would die for. These are what we call our closed-hand issues. These are uncomprom- things that we are not willing to compromise on. When we are talking about Scripture, we're talking about God, and when we're talking about the end times. These are things that we cannot change, that we, we believe to the, the, the depth of our being that these are things that we would die for. Now, an easy one, a doctrine, just give me an example of, what's a doctrine that we would die for? Well, it's the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ we would die for. He is God. He was not a man who became God. He is God. This is why when we understand doctrine, it it puts us under an umbrella of truth, but it also separates us from those who are false. And there's there's things that are false that are out there. There's some great music groups. We're listening to a great music group the other day, and then I I was listening to their music, and I I said, wow, their music's great. Let me find out what they believe. And I looked at what they believed, and I was like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, the founding pastors said that Jesus wasn't God when he was on earth. That's a, her- that's a heresy. And that, that means I need to not listen to that music. I need to pull away from that. Even though no matter how much it, great it might sound musically, no matter how much it uplifts my spirit, I have to side with truth. And these are doctrines we would die for. The deity of Christ, that Jesus died, but also his humanity. That is another one. He is fully God and fully man. Now, these are doctrines that we would die for. Now, in regards to the second coming, there are certain aspects of the second coming that we would, or the end times, that we would die for. First of all, that he's coming back. These aren't in your notes, but he is coming back. He will return. That is something we will die for. He's not just returning spiritually. He is physically, tangibly, visibly coming back, and every eye shall see him. And we will die for that truth. Secondly, we believe in regards to the end times that there will be a resurrection of believers and unbelievers. That there will be those who will be, we will be resurrected. This is why we do treasure the body as Christians, by the way. Um, we have talked, and I've seen this in different circles. When I was in India, I was giving a sermon, and I was talking about going into the cemetery, and someone came up to me afterwards, and they said, you know, those in Hinduism, they don't have cemeteries. They burn the bodies. It's only Christians that bury, because Christians are the only ones that truly treasure the body for what it is. 
And that is an aspect that you see, that we do treasure that. We believe that Jesus will rise, the dead will rise, unbelievers and believers, that there is a resurrection from the dead, and we would die for that. Now, a third aspect of this, this, the end times is we believe that believers and unbelievers will also be judged. There will be a judgment that is coming. There will be a judgment. We believe that. It's uncompromising. We will not debate that with someone. There is a judgment where people will stand before God and give an account for their life. There will be no, no way to lie. There is no way to get out. There is no way of any, any technical difficulty that you could get off with that you will have to give an account for your life. And it begins with, did I receive Jesus as Lord and Savior of my life and, did I f- and show it by my life? So that's the third aspect that we believe about the end times. And last of all, people will be spending their eternal destiny in heaven or hell. We believe that is an uncompromising doctrine. We believe in heaven and hell. Now, there are Christian groups that do not believe. They believe in heaven, but somehow they don't believe in hell. Matter of fact, just the university right over here, Aurora University, is known as, uh, their heritage is Christian Adventist. An Adventist is someone who doesn't believe that there is a hell, that there are, people are annihilated that there is no eternity in hell at all. Anyone who comes from a Seventh-day Adventist background or a Christian Adventist background does not believe in hell, but believes in what we call annihilationism. And we would say we disagree with you. This is something we are not willing to compromise on in that regard. And so these are the things that we are for sure about. And you can see this within the early Christian creeds, that all the early Christian creeds and statements had these things in mind. And they didn't talk about many of the other details that we're going to get into today because they realized there was vast differences in how people understood certain things about it. So we understand these are the things that we'll die for. But now there's, there's the next part, which is things that we will debate these are things we will debate. So we have die for, and now we have debate. That's the second things. Now we've kind of opened up the hand a bit. So we have a closed hand over here. This is die for. These are the things we will debate and have discussions about and still be in fellowship with one another. And there's a lot of things that we can talk about. For example, in just re- referring to us and God, is, is did God choose you or did you choose God? Yes. That's the answer. Yes. And, and, and some would know that there are certain systems here, and some of you might not be familiar with this, and some of you uh, may be, but it's called Calvinism versus Arminianism. And these are things we can debate with one another. Okay? These aren't things we're willing to die for, but we're willing to debate and discuss. Is it man's role or is it God's role? How does that work together? And we can debate these going back and forth. In regards to the end times, we see many different things following into this debate. Whether or not, for example, are there two comings or one coming? Is there a rapture with a seven-year tribulation and then the second coming? Or is the rapture and the second coming actually one event at the same time? See, we can debate these things. We can talk about these things. Or is there, is there I mean, there are many other things that we could talk about. The, the nature of what is known as the millennium. The millennium is, is this thousand-year reign of Christ that is mentioned in the book of Revelation. And scholars debate. They say, is it a literal thousand-year reign where Christ sets up a throne on earth and he actually sits in the chair? Or is it a spiritual reign that is going on in the hearts of believers now? Or it is a reign that is yet to come and it's still an indefinite period of time? And we look at a thousand years, as some would say, just as God does, God looks at a thousand years to us is, is one day to God. So there's a different understanding of time there. And we can debate these things and still be within the realm of orthodoxy and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And that's what we have to remember. As we get into this subject, I'm not trying to draw battle lines here. I'm trying to draw a wide circle that we can all be in to show that we are in agreement on the essentials of the faith. And you can hold something different, and that's great. It's okay. And we can, we can challenge one another on that and grow in our understanding of who God is. So we actually, actually, that's why we're talking about approaching things with intellectual humility. And then after the issues we can debate are issues that we can then discuss. Issues we can discuss. And in a church, it might be things like, do we sing hymns or praise songs? Do we, do we, you know, do we dress up as suits? Do we, do we wear different clothes? How do we wear? Do we wear beards like everyone should that's a man? Or, just kidding. Or how about this one? Is, there, is the tribulation a literal seven-year period of time, or is it something metaphorical? Is the church going to be taken out of the world before, the, or in the middle, or after the tribulation? These are things that we can discuss with one another and still be in fellowship. Again, we, we, there are many different aspects to this. Now, and lastly, there are doctrines that we can simply dump. Dump. And I say that because this is where I think where most of, many people are, and this is where I get frustrated. As I talked before, I mentioned Harold Camping. And these, these are things that in the end time study that have, when people make exact predictions on when Jesus is going to be back. And, and we, we need to dump that because the scripture is very clear. No man knows the day or the hour. But yet, even though that scripture is there, people have persisted in predicting time and time again when Jesus is back and failed miserably. Allow me just to give you a, just a cursory uh, view of different groups. Emanuel Swedenborg, he was the fan, founder of what became known as the Swedenborgian Church. In 1757, he predicted that Jesus would come back. Didn't happen. Even John Wesley, the founder of the, the Methodists, he predicted Jesus' coming would be in 1836, even though he died in 1791. So we forgive him because he was already dead before his prediction could fail. A little bit. Then you have William Miller, founder of the Millerites, which became the Seventh-day Adventist Church and the Adventist Church, which again started to Aurora University. That he predicted that in October 22nd, 1844, which, led, which came to be known as the great disappointment in history because all these people gathered fully expecting to go to heaven. And then it didn't happen. And then he realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, I was right. It just he came back in heaven and not on earth. But he's going to come back at this such and such a date and everybody gathered again and then it didn't happen again. And finally he said, I give up, I repent. But still, he made a prediction like that. You had others, such as Charles Tazzy Russell, founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. He predicted Jesus would come back in 1874. Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism in 1891. Sun Myung Moon, founder of the Moonies. and would occur, He thought he gave a broader swath between 1917 and 1930. Herbert W. Armstrong, founder of the Worldwide Church of God, who coincidentally predicted four different dates for Jesus' coming, 1935, 1943, 1972, and 1975. And what amazes me is that ever after every prediction, the people didn't leave him. They kept staying with him. You have another man, Edgar Weisenhut, who wrote a book, as I mentioned earlier, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. And then you have such figures as Ed Dobson, a contemporary figure, or Timothy Dwight, which is Jonathan Edwards' grandson, Edward, Edgar Case, and Isaac Newton, all felt the second coming would occur in the year 2000. Or others such as Harold Camping and Ronald Wineland have given several different dates once her initial predictions were proven to be false. Others such as, and these are names some of you might be familiar with, Jack Van Impey. 
And he gave given dates, and then he was proven wrong. Again, more recently, there was the blood moons. You've seen that in the news? The blood moons. And that was pioneered by a man named Mark Blitz, and it found its way into the ministry of John Hagee, who stated that Jesus would come back this past fall, although he wouldn't give a definitive date. Now, the, there are still many other teachers who have given dates that have yet to come. 2020, 2021, 2025, 2028, 2057. All of it? rubbish. It's garbage. I don't care who the teacher is. If they have gone beyond what the Word of God says, and Jesus says it very clearly here in Mark, he says, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Nobody knows. It could be right now, or it could be a thousand years from now. And when people say, oh, you know, the signs of the end are there. There's rumors and and wars and rumors of wars. Let me tell you, there's always been wars and rumors of wars, but The problem has been we didn't have social media in our ear all the time talking about it. And so you just need to be aware of that. And what's the point? Be ready. That's the point. To be ready. And don't buy anything. Just let me put this out there. It's my own personal thing. Don't ever buy any type of book about the end times at Walmart. Period. End of story. I don't mean to be cracking on Walmart so hard right now. But... If you're getting your theology from that, it's not, it's not a scriptural thing. I mean, people are going to have all these theories, and they're selling books. Don't do it. They're gone beyond what the scripture is written. Now, if someone talks generally and writes about the second coming, you can buy that, depending on who the teacher is. But be careful in what we take in, because there's so many different views out there, and they're all going different directions. Now, now we've, we've discussed the different distinctions. Now I want to give, uh, show some diversity of approaches or beliefs regarding the end times. Again, I'm giving it a, a flyby overview today. So this is slightly different than what we normally do, so please stay with me. I don't want to lose you. I know that some of you are like, this is too much for me. I don't go to seminary, Bible college. Hey, that's okay, right? I'm not asking you to. What I'm asking you to do is to listen in and understand there's different approaches between godly different men, and then I want to show you why we have come to the position that we have. That's what my goal is today. Okay, so when we're talking about the diversity of beliefs regarding the end times, what it means is how we approach the scriptures. And it means how do you read the Bible? Okay, now there's four different primary schools of thought when you approach the Bible and how to study the word of God. All right, and the first one is this. It's what is known as the historic approach. Historic approach. Now, primarily, we're talking about the book of Revelation. Whenever we talk about the end times, the biggest book that we talk about in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. In the Old Testament, we're talking about the book of Daniel. Daniel is the Old Test- is Revelation of the Old Testament. Okay? And we need to understand these books and how to approach them because interpretation, by, by far and away, is the major reason that churches and groups divide because of interpretation issues. And we want it, that's why we say we come intellectually honest and intellectually humble to realize that we have to submit ourselves to the greater understanding of Christianity that has occurred for the last 2,000 years and can't come up with something that just happened in the last 150 or even 200 years. Okay? So just stay with me for that. So here's the historic approach. Now let me describe this, or historist approach. This is a view that teaches specifically Revelation and, and the Old Testament book of Daniel are a symbolic rep- representation that presents the course of history from the apostles' life, specifically, again, Revelation, through the end of the age. 
Meaning that this, the symbols in the apocalypse correspond to events in the history of Western Europe specifically. So they're looking at history, saying that I'm going to look at Alexander the Great, I'm going to look at the the Roman Empire, I'm going to look at this kingdom, and I'm going to look at that kingdom, and I'm going to look at the book of Revelation as talking about our different parts in history, and there's nothing else left because I filled the first 20 chapters of Revelation, so it must be talking about us right now in Revelation chapter 21. And we're the last great kingdom of the earth. And, you know, and we have all these theories. And if you grew up in the 80s, any of you grew up in the 80s, you remember there was all these different theories on who the Antichrist was? I remember even hearing one time someone said that Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. Because they said it was Ronald Wilson Reagan. Six letters in his first name, six letters in his middle name, and six letters in his last name. And they're like, he's the Antichrist. I'm like, that's just, you're pulling stuff out of air. Donkeys can fly. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. I can make up stuff too. You know what I'm saying? Is you just make up stuff. It's not, you're not making it, you're not looking at the scripture and letting the scripture dictate to you. You are reading times back into the scripture rather than drawing out the meaning of scripture. That's called eisegesis. When you read what you want to in the scripture, you are a bad interpreter of God's word. You have to let the scripture tell you what it means. And we place ourselves underneath that. I can't change what I want the Bible to mean. Like many people do, well, this means this to me. I don't care what it means to you. I care what God meant it for me and you. You can't make it mean what you want it to mean. And in our culture today, it's all about you have the ability to choose your own meaning and your own destiny and choose what you want to believe and understand and take in. But the Bible is, changes all that for us. It says we have to place ourselves under the word of God and let God dictate the meaning to us. Now, again, in this historist, uh, historist approach, they look at the history of Western Europe, including various popes, the Protestant Reformation, the French Revolution, and rulers such as Charlemagne. And then most interpreters place the events of their day in the later chapters of Revelation, and we do that in our time as well. Now, here's some, some people who believe that, just so I can give you a little bit of case, because some of you might be like, either that's really cool, or other people might say, that's completely ridiculous. There are some people that are big names that have adhered to this. Names like John Wycliffe, John Knox, William Tyndale, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, John Wesley and Charles Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Finney, Spurgeon, Matthew Henry. Many of these people held to this position. And those in this camp advocate what we call a post-millennial position. They believed many times that our righteous deeds in our life would bring about the second coming of Jesus Christ meaning that Jesus would come after the millennium. Post means after. Millennium is the thousand-year reign. But they believe that our righteous deeds would bring about the coming of Jesus, and they were actually living in the millennium in that period of time. And do you know what killed that theological position? World War I. Because people saw that the world wasn't getting better. And that's what that position advocated. We're getting better, more righteous, we'll influence more people, we'll get into society, we'll, and it'll be a Christian world that we'll influence through government and things like that. And World War I decimated that position. And, and many people had left the position behind, although in recent years it's getting more advocates to it. But not a lot that I've encountered have held that position. Some do, such as Douglas Wilson, other different prominent theologians. So that is the historist, historist approach. Now I find this position to be lacking myself, despite the several big names in church history that have held to it. But there's a second approach. It's called the preterist approach. Preterist approach. Now, again, these are names that you're, you don't need to remember all of this. I just want to show you again, building a framework. Now, this is the, the, the word preter means past. It's derived from the Latin. And there are two major views among preterists, what's called full preterism, 
partial preterism. I won't bore you with all the details, but let me just summarize it in this way. They look at a lot of the prophecies in Matthew chapter 24 and what is known as the Olivet Discourse and many of the events in Revelation to actually have occurred in A.D. 70. They were fulfilled with the destruction of the Jewish temple. See, so they see a lot of the prophecies that we would see as future. They'd say, no, they were fulfilled in A.D. 70, the destruction of the Jewish temple. And many in history have held to that position. There are many big names that are associated with that, such as Mark Dever, Legan Duncan, Sinclair Ferguson, John Frame, John Murray, J.I. Packer, A.W. Pink, Sam Storms, um, Bruce Waltke, James White, and pretty much anybody who's a Presbyterian has held to this view. Okay, it's preter. R.C. Sproul is a big advocate of what we call preterism. For those of you who know the names, forgive me if you don't know those, just stay with me. But they're saying that these prophecies were fulfilled in, during Jesus, basically his time. And they have earlier dates for different books and things like that. And then there is the third approach, which is known as the idealist approach. The idealist view is also known as the spiritual view. It uses what we call the allegorical allegory, like symbols, uh, metaphor, to interpret the book of Revelation. They don't take things literally, but it's all metaphor. So they don't see a literal thousand-year reigns. It's a metaphor of an indefinite period of time. And they would, they would support this by Satan really isn't a dragon, but it's a, a figure of speech that is used to describe him. It's a metaphor. So they see that throughout the Old Testament. So, so let me ask you a question before we go any further. Confused yet? Okay, you might be. That's okay. Stay with me. All right, I'm just kind of laying some framework for you. I hope some of you are like, this is great. This is awesome. Someone's like, why didn't I stay in bed and just hit snooze? Okay, but again, I want you to stay with me as we go through this. Now, the idealist approach uh, was advocated by the ancient church father Origen and made prominent by Augustine. And according to this view, the events in Revelation are not tied to specific historical events, but it's basically uh, a a big story that is talking about the the cosmic battle between evil and good and good wins. So it's all about symbolism to the spiritual approach. It's not literal, but it's very spiritual. And I find that to be very, very lacked in. And I, I have not found in the circles that I have walked in very many scholars who hold to this position any longer. But the fourth position is where the position that we would be in. We call the futurist approach. That we believe while some prophecies were fulfilled in AD 70, there are still many prophecies that yet remain, and the preterist would say the same thing. But we would see many other prophecies that they would see fulfilled, we see yet to come. Yet to come. And again, we're looking at certain passages, among which is the passage we had read today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And that is, many people would have different, they say that Jesus is coming back. Preterists would say Jesus is coming back as well. But they would see other prophecies as being fulfilled, such as the promises that were made to Israel. Now, this this view teaches that there are still things that are yet to come. It's widely popular among evangelical Christians today, and uh, most, some of the the teachers and schools that where you could find that would be Dallas Seminary, Moody Bible Institute, Biola, Master Seminary, pretty much any Bible college, Theologians such as Charles Ryrie, John Walverd, and Dwight Pentecost are noted scholars of this position. Tim LaHaye made this theology popular in, with his Left Behind series, with his in, um, and others advocate, excuse me, a futurist position such as John MacArthur, Daryl uh, Bach, Robert Saucy, and Chuck Swindoll. But those would be in what we call a dispensationalist camp, which means periods of time where God worked, while John Piper, D.A. Carson, and Wayne Grudem would be in what is known as the historic premillennial camp, which are divisions between the two. Now, now that you're all confused, let me try to bring it all back. 
Okay, I want to talk about why, the, before I actually get to our position, I want to talk about the directions that we take in teaching the end times. The directions that we take in teaching the end times and why we have taken this position. Now, we have taken a position known as historic premillennialism as opposed to what is known, meaning that, uh, and it's a position that has been held widely through early church history, especially Wayne Grudem, John Piper, these will all be advocates of it. Um, but then there is a different division even within premillennialism called called premillennial dispensationalism. And that's where most of Moody would be. And I went to Moody, uh, so I understand the position very well. But we as a church have say, taken a slightly different nuance than that. Not to say that if you hold that position, that's not a, that's a, not a problem. It's not. We're not saying that. We're saying that we're trying to be charitable in our understandings because even the positions that we have talked about, there are many different people within them that we love and admire. Now, why have we taken this position and what does it mean? Well, we're going to be breaking that down in the next few weeks, and it won't be so much just teaching. We're going to get into the text next time. But we have taken this, our teaching team and elders have taken this approach to end times because it involves a charitable posture, a charitable posture. And what we mean by that is this. We want to be gracious toward those who hold a different approach than we do. There are many godly people on all sides of this debate, as I have shown you. And we want to make sure that we hold a charitable position with, toward each other as we may come from differing places in regards to the study of the end times. Remember, we have the four things that we hold dear. That he's coming back. All of us would agree with that. All these positions that I would talk about would talk about him coming back for the most part. Now, theologian R.C. Sproul said it best. He said it this way. He said, debates over eschatology, again, the study of the end times will probably continue until the Lord returns and will have the advantage of hindsight rather than the disadvantage of foresight. The divisions that exist within the Christian community are understandable, considering that both the subject matter and the literary genre of future prophecy are exceedingly difficult. What it means by that, just let me pause there for a second. When we look at the Bible, we have a tendency to just open the Bible and go, it's the Bible, right? So we do. So it's the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, it's great, okay? But the thing is, is when we look at the Scripture, we fail to realize that the Bible is a, is a, is a uh, uh, compilation of different books and genres. Meaning, you don't interpret Genesis the same way you interpret Psalms. Psalms is poetry. Genesis is, is history. You don't look at Revelation in the same way that you read Matthew. Or Paul. You approach them slightly differently. We do this all the time intuitively in our world. You don't read John Grisham the same way that you do how-to manual. They're two different things. Okay? You don't read Shakespeare in the same way that you might read, I don't know what people read. Jeanette Oakey Finocchi. What's that? Jeanette Oak? Christian romance novels. You don't read the same way. Okay, we just have different ways and different approaches in how we read different things. So we just need to understand that when we approach the Scripture, we have to understand the genre in which it's written. So I read the Psalms differently than I would read the book of Matthew. So we need to understand that if we're to be good Bible students, we don't just say what the Bible says. Let me tell you something. Everybody says this is what the Bible says. If you're talking with anybody who claims to be any type of Christian, they say, we believe the Bible. Great. So does a cultist. They say that too. But it's how you interpret the Bible is the right way we have to go about that. So we just need to be aware of that as we jump into that. And we're taking a charitable posture, so different genre that's there. A future prophecy are exceedingly difficult. This does not mean that we may push the Bible aside or neglect its eschatological sections. On the contrary, 
The interpretive difficulties call us to a greater diligence and persistence in seeking their solutions. And we would wholeheartedly say amen, even though he, he, we would see us and him even as different places in regards to the end time. But we see this as still brothers in Christ. So again, we're driving a wide circle is what we're trying to do. So we come with a charitable posture. And seeking a solution, we should remember that the Christian church and virtually all her branches has refused to make any one of the millennial interpretations an article of the creed. Do you know what the millennium is? You know, scholars have actually said kind of tongue-in-cheek that the millennium is the thousand years where scholars debate the meaning of revelation. Right? They make a joke about that. But really, it's, we're talking about the thousand-year reign of Christ. And is it, did Jesus come back before the millennium? Does he come back after the millennium? Are we in the millennium right now? These are questions that come to us. So we see, though, in church history, people have refused to make, a, uh, to make any one of the millennial interpretations an article of a creed. The difference has been to accept as a Christian any person who believes in the visible return of Jesus Christ. So while personally we may have very different views concerning eschatology, our motto should always be in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now secondly, we want to make sure that we hold a consistent interpretation as we go through this. We should look at the scripture. We take several things into consideration. We look at the genre of the book, as I just mentioned. But that's not all. We, look, we also need to look at history. We need to look how other schools of people have interpreted, Christians have interpreted over time. And we need to look at also the grammar of a text as well. See, the trash basket of church history is full of those who didn't take these three things into consideration when interpreting if we're going to look and understand the second coming of Christ, then we need to make sure that we're not spiritualizing things that are to be taken literally, nor are we to disregard what the grammar says in a passage specifically. We need to be consistent in how we terp- interpret the, the Bible. Now next, we believe that our position helps us with an all-contingency plan. Now this might be slightly different than some of you, the position that I've already articulated. Some of you might come from a uh, the dispensational premillennialist background, that's fine. I've come from that myself. I'm still wrestling with it, just to be quite open. Um, and for those who believe that there is a rapture and it takes place before any tribulation, also known as the pre-tribulation position, would occur, which differs from the view that we have taken, which is a post-tribulation position, allow us to say this, if we are wrong and you are right, praise the Lord. Because that means we're not here. <laughs> we're with Jesus. But, If we are wrong, I mean, if we are right and you are wrong, then people are in trouble because they haven't prepared themselves to go through persecution. So that's why we have a contingency plan in place. And again, we're being intellectually humble, trying to be, as we go through this. Now, allow allow me to kind of illustrate that for you and what I meant by that. See, if we're on a plane, we would hear the flight attendants give us an, an informative talk before we take off. And they would say this, we don't anticipate us losing any auction any oxygen, but if we do, the air will flow from the mask that drops from the ceiling. They were prepared just in case it did happen. That is our position. If we are wrong, then we have taken, taken out of the world before the persecution starts, we praise God for that, but if we're right, then we are prepared to endure it if it occurs. Next, we believe that this is a celebration of God's plan celebration in all its fullness and all the differences that are there because why this is not this is not a doctrine again that's meant to divide us 
This is something that is to encourage us. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18. If you look in that passage, and this is how Paul ends that passage. And this is the only part I want to talk about today, and I'm going to come back to this specifically next week. But it says this, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The doctrine of last things should encourage each one of us. Jesus will show himself to be victorious over all evil and will validate and vindicate everything he has said in his word. Now, I'm out of time, but I want to just go through these last points rather quickly. First of all, I want to talk about God's design for the end times. God's design for addressing the end times. Why does he give us the end times? Why, that's the most important thing I want us to take away from this. Why did God show us the end times? Even if we have all the differences that are there, what benefit does it have for us? For the mom at home with her kids, with a person at work who is just barely understanding Christianity but wants to follow, what does this have for us? Well, first of all, it provides insight into the future. How many of you would like to know the future? You like to know the future, you like to know what's going to happen. Some of you are like, I really don't like the present all that much. The future scares me even more. Okay? But some of us do. We want to know what's going to happen in the future. What's going to happen? We, and God is telling us here, this is definitively going to happen. He is coming back. The end times tells us what will happen in the future. We get an idea that the world will not get better, but get worse spiritually and morally. Secondly, it also promotes hope and comfort amidst grief and trouble. It promotes hope and comfort amidst grief and trouble. When we remember that Jesus is coming back, it helps us take our pain and suffering in the present in stride, especially if we are suffering for the name of Christ. I think of the, saint, the martyred saints in the book of Revelation who are calling out from the altar, how long, Lord, when will we be vindicated? That brings grief, that brings comfort to us when we realize that all of the steps that we have taken, all the sacrifices we have made will be vindicated. That Jesus will see you, he will wrap his arms around you, and say, well done, good and faithful servant. That should encourage us in the midst of our grief and trouble. Now thirdly, it promotes, three, I did two, I went to Bible college, three, promotes hope and comfort amidst grief, I mean, uh, excuse me, it points us to God's sovereignty. Nothing is going to happen without God knowing about it. We think that God doesn't understand our situations in life. I talked to someone the other day. I was sharing something about God with him. He was struggling with something. And he started talking about his life. And, he was, and I stopped and I, I, I was thinking to myself, do you really think that God does not understand what you've gone through? Do you think that this has caught God off guard? God is sovereign. He knows it all and he is all-powerful. And if he is sovereign over the end of time, then he can be sovereign over your life, over your family, over your spouse, over your children as well. And we need to make sure that we continue to pray and put them under his care. Fourthly, it's a reminder that God puts eternity into our hearts. God puts eternity into our hearts. God has placed a desire for eternity in our hearts. We long for life, for freedom, and for something more than this world has to offer. The desires of this world are temporary and incomplete. Eternity is the only place where perfection, bliss, eternal joy, peace, and real purpose truly exist. Lastly, as we study the end times, we will see that it produces a heart of evangelism. When we realize that the time is coming to an end and that Jesus is coming back today, tomorrow, before I finish my sentence with this message, we realize that time is running out for people to surrender their lives to the Lord. We feel a sense of urgency because we know that once he comes back, there will be no second chances. 
God has declared the day when it will be. And while we still have breath, we need to tell people about Jesus before it's too late. Now, the study of the end times, let me conclude with this. The study of the end times can be daunting. And it's good for us to remember that He is coming again. We can't gloss over it, nor can we dismiss easily those who hold different opinions about the book. Revelation or this passage we're going to be jumping into with Thessalonians. I have to say that I laugh when I see churches saying that they know everything about the book of Revelation because they have a naive confidence that they know everything about the end of time. Revelation is not the book we are studying, but it informs us greatly about what 1 Thessalonians is talking about. Our hope is that next week, now that we have set the stage, we'll be able to build a case for our position and bring you along. And again, if you differ in that position, that's fine. If we can agree that Jesus is coming back, we're okay, and our doctrinal statement allows that. But I do not want to send you home without hope or discouraged, depressed. This is an immense topic, and it requires all of our concentration and focus. And one, and one, a subject that we must tread carefully through. We want to honor what God says in His Word and then do what it says. So stay with me as we walk through this text next week and as we look into the end times to see all that God has for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank You. And Lord, I come before You humbly. Lord, this is an immense subject and one that I, I feel so unqualified. Lord, after all the reading and all the schooling, I'm still amazed at just the mysteries contained within your word. And Lord, there are some mysteries that belong to you and you alone. And yet you revealed, Lord, that you are coming again and that you will reign and you will rule. And Lord, help us to understand. Help us to come with open hearts and open minds while clinging to the truths and things that we know and hold dearly, that you are coming back, that there will be a resurrection at the end of time, that unbelievers and believers will be judged and there will be those that spend eternity in heaven or hell. And Lord, may we latch arms with our brothers and sisters who might have a different view, but may we agree that you are the Lord of all, that you are the King of eternity, and you are the sovereign God over the entire universe, and you will come back. And we delight in that truth. So Lord, glorify your name in our lives. Glorify your name in our church. Keep us unified in the Spirit through the bond of peace. And Lord, help this doctrine to inspire us to take greater steps and trust in you no matter what struggles we're going through, no matter what sufferings we may be dealing with and what sins we're holding on to, Lord, may we see your purpose and may we surrender and submit in, your, in glory and in joy, knowing that we are fulfilling the purpose for which you have intended us. So, Lord, be with us today. Glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.